Good morning, everyone. Good morning. As I get set up here, uh, if you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, be in verse 22 through 25, I'll read that for us this morning before we pray. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. We read there, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather, we want to seek you. We thank you for the work that you've done in Jesus Christ as we've read through this letter that you have, in your great mercy, begotten us again. You brought us into an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. You've ransomed us from the futile ways of our forefathers and through the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So today we, we ask that you would be with us, show your strong work to correct us, to direct our hearts towards Jesus Christ, and to build us up as one body, one spiritual house on the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, this morning, um, Lord willing, we will finish up chapter one of First Peter as we're going through our series in it. And we're going backwards in the slides. So we're going to hopefully do that this morning. And as we get started, um, the passage here is a little bit uh, like an arch. So here is an arch at uh, Moody Bible Institute. So this is where I went to school in downtown Chicago. There's a well-known spot on campus just called the Arch for obvious reasons. And it's a large arch that goes from the interior of the campus out to the street in downtown Chicago. This is a picture of me there on the left-hand side back way, way back, what seems a long time ago and yet not so long ago all at the same time, back in 2013 with some good friends about to head off to a campus event. There is a, a certain Rachel Kaczynski in that picture back when we were just good friends. But, um, but an arch, if you can make out the picture here, the, the structure of it, it has these vertical supports that the, the wall on either side of the opening and then over top, as whether it's just a straight lintel or in this case a circular arch, there's these wedge-shaped stones called voussoirs, if you were curious about that, that go up over top and arc to meet in the middle. When they meet in the middle, there's a special stone called a keystone or a capstone that locks those, uh, those curving stones into place and allows the arch to bear weight over top of it. So why is this passage like an arch? Well, Peter has a central command in it. This is his main concern for us, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Before he says that, though, he gives a support for it, a reason for doing that. He says, you have purified your souls. And then immediately after the command, he supports it again with another reason, which is you have been born again of imperishable 
see, so you see the structure there of this, this arch, but I think it's also fitting in another way. That keystone, that capstone uh, for the arch enables it to bear weight. For Peter's readers who are experiencing persecution, experiencing the heavy weight of that, one of the ways that they are going to be able to bear up under it is if they love one another. So this is the, the keystone of it. So we're going to take it as the passage takes it. We're going to look at his first reason, look at the command, and then the second reason. So look at the, the start of verse 22. It says, love one another, or uh, we're to love one another because you've purified your souls. But it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now the phrase is a little bit ambiguous. It seems like you can take it in a couple of different ways. So we're going to try and walk through it a little bit to gain some clarity. First off, he says that they've purified their souls. What does that mean? Well, Peter has made it clear as he's gone through this first portion of the letter that we have been saved, been made right with God by his great mercy, right? Last week, Pastor Jonathan taught about how Christ has ransomed us from our previous works, from our previous ways, by his own precious blood. That is a purification of a kind where God takes our sin, cleanses us from that, and makes us right with him. But the way that Peter is using purified here is it's different. He's talking about ongoing sanctification. He's talking about growing in holiness. Why do we say that? This word here is used in a couple other places in the, the New Testament. Um, actually, it, it comes from religious language in the Old Testament but around the temple where they would purify themselves or consecrate themselves to be made ready to meet with the Lord or to worship the Lord in the temple. So Exodus 19, 10, and 11 would be an example of that where God calls them to consecrate themselves, to wash their garments, to go through these rituals in preparation because he's going to meet with them on Mount Sinai. In the Gospels and Acts, we see this word used like that, talking about these Jewish purification rituals. But whenever you start to look at the letters post-Christ, you see it used in a little bit of a different way. So in James chapter 4, he has been correcting, James has been correcting his readers about their friendliness with the world and enmity with God. And so he calls them to submit yourselves to therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So this is, he's talking about repentance, about putting away an old way of life, and pursuing holiness in the Lord. Same thing in 1 John chapter 3. We read there, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So in verse 2, it says, We are God's children now, and then he goes on to say, We purify ourselves. So it can't be coming into Christ. This is talking about growing in the knowledge of Christ, growing in holiness. So this ongoing sanctification. So purified, dealing with our growth in Christ. He says the way that this happens is by your obedience to the truth, by your obedience to the truth. The truth here, it's used, if you just saw the truth, what what does that mean? What is that referring to? It's used a couple different ways in the New Testament when you see that phrase. Sometimes it's talking specifically about the gospel message of Christ, that Jesus Christ has died for sin and risen from the dead. 
See that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, or 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 through 13. It's also used, though, uh, of just more broadly of the teachings of the Christian faith, not just the gospel message, but the broader implications of that and the teachings, the will of God. So we see that in places like 2 John 4, 3 John 3 and 4, 2 Peter 1, 12. Given that this idea of being purified is growing in holiness, it seems that this would be best to understand it, that this is the broad teachings of the Christian faith. So all that, let's just summarize that real quick. Peter is saying that they are making progress in the faith. And that's happened by hearing and by submitting to the word of God. But that's not really Peter's point. What he wants them to see is that has led to something. He said it's, it's led to a sincere brotherly love. So think about it a little bit um, like this. Because I think if I, whenever I first read that, I was sitting there going, well, how does that work? How does purifying ourselves, how does becoming more holy naturally lead to love? And I think it's primarily like this. Um, the idea of sincere, the word is actually, it's a negative. So it comes from hypocrisy or, and so this word for sincere is not hypocritical or not faked. So this is calling his readers to an unfaked love of other Christians. And so if you read right after this passage in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Those are sins which all damage relationships and hinder love in our body, in any body. So if you were to put off those sins, it would naturally begin to lead to a more sincere love. His point is not that purifying ourselves in holiness produces love, but it produces a sincere love, a genuine love. You notice deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. These are things that would be very much in contrast or contradictory to that sincere love. Think of it like this. If you garden, so whether you want to have a flower bed or you plant a vegetable garden, you want to have these plants grow up healthy and strong, produce good fruits, beautiful flowers, so you can enjoy the, the results of that, right? You uh, don't want to go to your garden and find this there, these monstrous 16-inch tall dandelions that were growing in our front, front garden. Not real great to see. They may still be there. I don't know. I didn't take care of them. <laughs> Sorry, Rachel. <laughs> but these things are really big. Uh, you don't want to see that. So if you are going to have a garden that produces good results, you want to get into it and you want to weed it. You want to take out these unhelpful plants, these ones that you don't want. Why? Because they're going to sit in the good soil. They're going to take up the water, the nutrients that could be going to your garden. And that's the same kind of thing that Peter's talking about. We need to get rid of the sin that is pulling us towards an ungodly perspective of one another, towards an ungodly action towards one another, to give space, to pave the way for a sincere love for each other. And that same thing should be happening with us, brothers and sisters. We need to take seriously God's call to holiness and to purify ourselves by his grace. So we have to purify ourselves looking back at that, to purify ourselves from malice and grudges and instead look to forgive one another of anything that we have against one another. We need to purify ourselves from deceit or pretense of 
acting like we have it all together, and instead welcome people in, be more open about places that we are struggling and need prayer and encouragement and correction. We need to purify ourselves from slander and talking poorly about one another and instead honor and esteem and speak graciously of one another. If we get rid of those kinds of things, then a sincere love for one another is going to begin to flow more freely. So the question is, what are things that you need to purify yourselves from today? Are you submitting yourself to the word of God? We'll do that. We'll get into that more next week in chapter 2. So Peter's point is that by growing in holiness, we've put off sin through obeying God's word, and it's produced a sincere love. Well, since there's a sincerity of love now, he's going to call us to apply that, to love one another deeply. So that brings us to his central concern, to love one another earnestly. Look at the second part of verse 22. It says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, this is something that Peter really wants his readers and us to get. So he talks about a sincere brotherly love. He talks about loving one another here twice in verse 22. He also, in chapter 2, verse 17, says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Chapter 3, verse 8, again, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And again, in verse, verse 8 of chapter 4, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Same, same wording there in chapter 4, since love covers a multitude of sin. For at least four times, Peter is repeating this for his readers. Do you think he may want them to, to catch on to this uh, in this small letter that he's, he's instructing them in. So what, are we, what is he instructing here? We're going to um, look at the three ways that he describes love in this verse. First, he says we're to love one another. Seems a little bit simple, but I think if we pay attention, it's going to pr- uh, bring some fruit. Love is really, it's a character quality that should mark our whole community. Yeah, this is Jesus' point in John, uh, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Peter is saying it's not just one of us that should have love for other people. It's not just the really godly, the really mature the pastors or so on, who are supposed to love one another. This is supposed to be a mutual love for people. So each one of us expressing and exercising love for the whole body. Do you see that? So it should mark our whole church life, each one of us, a mutual love, care, affection, service, sacrifice for one another. Our love should extend out to people with whom we have theological disagreements with, to people who are difficult to get along with relationally, to people who are not in the same stage of life as us, to uh, people who have sinned against us. Why? Because we have been called into one body, one family in Christ, and we're to love one another. So think about this for a moment. Think about the people that you spend the most time with here in this, this church body, whether 
at the fellowship meal or inviting to your home or just out uh, during the week? Who do you spend the most time with? Why is that? Do you find that all of those people tend to be like you, same stage of life? Do they tend to have the same lifestyle choices? Why is that? A love for one another in the body of Christ encourages us to love all people, whether it's young and old or, or it, all, all stripes and, and backgrounds of life. Christ is redeeming for himself a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all generations, to bring them into one family in Christ. So our unity comes not because of similar social or economic or national backgrounds, but because we have been united in Christ. Is that the impetus for your unity? Is that why you gather with people? Because we have one Lord that we share in common. Is that the motivation for your love for one another? They are people who have been bought by the blood of Christ. They are part of the family of God, my brother, my sister in the Lord, and so I am compelled to love them. Secondly, he says we are to love one another earnestly. This, uh, the word here, uh, it comes from a root that means to extend or stretch out. So often you'll see it in the Gospels uh, about somebody stretching out their hand. So Jesus will say, stretch out your hand to heal it, right? So it has this idea of stretching or extending. And as it comes into the, the word used here, it becomes to take an idea of, of effort, of strenuous, of straining your muscles, um, it's also translated as with that idea of effort of constant or without ceasing. So it's this idea of, uh, of earnestness, of, of straining, and of doing this constantly, putting forth effort into it. So it's used in uh, Luke chapter 12, uh, 22, verse 44 of Jesus' prayer in the garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. It's used of the prayer that the church offered up for Peter when he was imprisoned in Acts chapter 12, verse 5, this kind of passionate, earnest, deliberate outworking. So he's calling us to, to deepen our love, to have it strain forward and to push past hindrances. So even whenever the circumstances are hard. So think of times when maybe it's the fellowship meal or you're out talking to somebody and you're, you're tired you really just want to take care of yourself and they start yourself and they start sharing a struggle or an issue and you just man I I just I can't handle this right now. I really just want to make a quick excuse, get myself out of here and take care of myself. Loving earnestly encourages us to strain to stay put, to push forward, to listen, to encourage them, to pray with them. Whenever somebody has sinned against us and all we want to do is just avoid them, blow them off. And if we're honest, if we want to return evil for evil, loving earnestly means that we need to be eager to seek unity, to be quick to forgive and to bless people who have wronged us. The people we're called to love, the difficult situations that we face with them, the humility, the sacrifices, the effort that's required to have this kind of love, all of this is bound up in this word. We are to make that effort through all of these challenges and all of these hard situations. And of this kind of earnest, constant, enduring, unrelenting love, 
would be very important for Peter's readers as they undergo persecution, hardship. This is one of the ways that they can help bear one another up, right? To experience persecution alone is very heavy. But if we have brothers and sisters who support us, who pray for us, who fellowship with us, we are given strength to bear up together under it. And lastly, he says, it's love from a pure heart. Just briefly on this, this is similar to having a sincere love that he mentioned earlier in the verse. Um, But this is an idea of having uh, no ulterior motives. So if you think of the Pharisees or Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about uh, how people would do good to be seen by men or to pray to be seen by men or to give alms to be seen by men. So the actions were good, but they weren't carried out because they loved people and wanted to do good to them. The actions were carried out because they loved the praise of men and wanted their own reputation to be built up. Love from a pure heart is not about appearances. It's about looking at people, seeing their need, loving them, and working and acting for their good. So this is the love that we must be, it's, it's to be concerned about people and their good. If you are sitting here and you go, you know what, my love could, could really use some work. Um, how do I begin to start thinking how love actually takes root, takes action, takes form? I'd encourage you to look at some of the exhortations in Peter's letter. I'm just going to put a few up here on the screen uh, later in the letter that Peter's going to encourage and instruct his readers to follow. And these are expressions of love for one another. So in chapter 3, he says, have unity of mind. Are you seeking to be unified, to have peace among each other, to put aside differences uh, and to forgive, to show sympathy? Are you compassionate? Do you listen to people? Do you encourage them to cover over sins and bear with one another, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling? Again, thinking about crossing over young and old, married or single, homeschooler, non-homeschooler. Are you loving one another? Are you inviting people of all kinds of backgrounds into your home to encourage them? Exercising our gifts, whether we serve or whether we lead or we teach, using our gifts to edify one another, having humility towards one another. These are all some practical ways that we can work out love for one another. That brings us to Peter's second reason. Why do we love one another earnestly? Before I get there, uh, kids, let me ask you a question. If you look up here, it's a little faded, but there's some, some wood here, some wood boards on the left, and some bricks. Uh, I really, I need to make a house. I really need to make a house, and it's really, really important that this house not burn down. Don't ask me why. It's just really important. If I said, hey, I need to make a house, and I need to make sure this doesn't burn down, what, what do you want to use? Should I use the wood or should I use the bricks? Bricks, okay, bricks, yeah, because wood's not going to do so well with that. But what if I change and I said, you know what, tonight I'm going to go home and I'm going to get out the fire pit and I'm going to cook up some s'mores for the kids. Um, when I, what should I put in the fire pit? Should I put in wood or should I put in bricks? Uh, I guess once the bricks get going, they'll be pretty warm. But uh, um, Wood, right? It's... 
depending on what kind of outcome you want is going to determine what kind of material goes into it, right? Or said differently, the material that's, that's used will determine the results, right? So if you want to have a love that is earnest and constant, it needs to come from a nature that is enduring and constant. And that's Peter's second point. He's supporting why do we love one another earnestly? We love one another because we've been born and you have imperishable seed. So this takes all the way through the end of the, the chapter here. It says, since you have been born again, so love one another earnestly since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he's going to go on and support that claim by quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 there. But uh, so he's going to, he contrasts this. He says, we've been born again, born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. We see these words already used in chapter one, where in verse, uh, in the early part of it, he says that we have an imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for us, right? And he's talked about perishable things like gold and silver. So he's, he's using these words like this. So each one of us, we've been born once of perishable seed. And all of us, the, the result of that is all of us are going to die because the perishableness of our life is going to result ultimately in perishing. But now he said, no, we've also been born again. And this time it's through imperishable seed and enduring seed. And this happens, what, what is this seed? Okay, what, what are we talking about here? So if you trace it out through the passage, so he's talking about seed, and he equates that with the word of God, which is picked up in Isaiah chapter 40. And then at the end of the, the verse of 25, he explicitly says, well, this word, this word of the Lord from Isaiah 40, which remains forever, that's the good news that was preached to you. The imperishable seed is the truth of the gospel, Christ's death for our sins and resurrection from the dead. Now, it's true that the entire word of God is equally faithful, equally sure, equally enduring. But Peter's specifically saying, when you came to hear the message of Jesus Christ and believe in him, you were born again with a new imperishable nature. And because of that nature, you can love constantly, enduringly, deeply, because it's in your nature. God has given you a new nature. So, um, verse 23, though, he calls this word the living and abiding word of God. I just want to touch on those briefly. When he says that the word of God is living and abiding, he's saying that the word of God is powerful and it's going to last forever. So the word of God is powerful to bring life to people who are dead in their sins, right? This is, again, what, exactly what he's just said, that through the gospel of Christ, we have come to new life. We've been forgiven of our sins. So one thing we should be thinking about is with our unbelieving family, classmates, neighbors, we need to be speaking the word of God because that's what brings new, enduring life to them. But the word of God is also powerful for those of us who are in Christ. If you want to grow in knowledge of God, if you want to grow in holiness, then we need to go to God's word to know it and to submit to it. God's word is powerful. 
God's word is also abiding. It remains. It's enduring. It means it's, it's sure. It's stable. It's dependent. It doesn't change. So if you want something to build your life upon that's not going to change, not going to shift, not going to disappoint, then we need to go to God's word. The Lord in his promises, in his truth revealed, in his commands, that is the rock upon which we can build our life. Living and enduring. So now he's going to support that idea. So he said, hey, the word of God is living and enduring. How do you know that, Peter? Well, look at Isaiah chapter 40. It says there, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So you see that he's saying the same type of thing here. The word of the Lord remains forever. Uh, Looking briefly at this, I just put this up on a little uh, table here, kind of capture this. So Peter says, or the Isaiah is saying, all flesh, just talking about people, human beings, humanity in general, all flesh is like grass. He's using a poetic image. They're like grass. Their outcome, they're going to wither. This is perishable seed. Then you have all its glory, all of humanity's glory. So our achievements, our power, our nations, all of the splendor that comes along with it. Well, that's like a flower of the grass. Okay, it looks really nice. It's beautiful. Catches people's attention. But that too is going to fall. And honestly, in the span of eternity, the span of a flower's life, it's, it's over and done in a moment. But then you have the word of the Lord, and that remains forever. So here's this perishable, imperishable seed that's contrasted here. So primarily, Peter is using this to support the idea that the word of the Lord remains forever. But I think there's also a second reason why he particularly chooses Isaiah 40 that Peter's readers probably wouldn't miss. And the reason is this. Israel was at that time in Babylon. They were in exile in Babylon. They were under a foreign power, and they're, they're there, they're, they're waiting, they're wanting to go back home to, to the land of Israel, and God had given them a promise. He'd given them a word that said, I will return you back to the land of Israel. It sure didn't really seem like that would happen, being under Babylon, which is a major power at that time, but God's word was true. It endured past Babylon and it came to pass. His plans and purposes were fulfilled and he brought them back. Peter's readers are also in exile awaiting a return to their home country. They're under a foreign power, Rome. They're experiencing the weight of a culture that does not value Jesus Christ And they too have received a word, a promise from the Lord that he will carry them through and he will bring them to an imperishable inheritance. And just like Isaiah's words to Israel were fulfilled, so God's word to them would be fulfilled. That's exactly the same word to us today. So we look all around us, whether it's in America or Canada or other nations throughout the world, and we see increasing antagonism here to the Christian faith, right? To associate with Christ and with his word is less and less pleasing in the eyes of the world. So whether it's, you you look at Canada and you see pastors who are simply preaching the word of God, talking about homosexuality, not, uh, not harshly, but just 
lovingly, respectfully, with the desire that people would come to know Christ and to grow. And those pastors are arrested, like Dale McAlpine was in 2017, preaching on the streets, and apparently, a, even a, ironically, a homosexual police officer came up and arrested him for doing that. Or uh, things that are happening in Canada today, burning churches, and you see government leaders who are saying nothing about it, or who are indifferent, or tacitly condoning it. You have people like Baron Olstutzman, the florist, or Jack Phillips, the baker, who because of their desire to honor Christ and his word, not go against conscience, they said, you know what, our businesses of being a florist or being a baker, I can't work for that same-sex wedding. And they're taken to court because of that. I think Jack Phillips is just recently taken to court for a third time after being uh, exonerated the first two cases. He's being targeted. Christians are being targeted. So increasingly, this is happening. But God's word for us, as we begin to feel that pressure mounting more and more, is equally true. Listen to just some of the words that were read in Isaiah 40. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, all the nations are as nothing before him, the Lord. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. And then later in the, the chapter, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Whatever mounting pressure that we experience, it will not last. Those nations, those rulers, those people are not going to last. But the word that the Lord has spoken to us, that he has an imperishable inheritance for us, that he has grace sufficient for us, that he is with us, that will endure and so the this, this second reason is really about encouraging us to love one another so that we can endure faithfully. So to conclude, it's like an arch. So he said, hey, having purified your souls by obedience, it's led to a sincere love. It's paved the way to love sincerely. So love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's hard to do, but the, the work that God has done in Jesus Christ to give you an imperishable nature that enables you to love enduringly, constantly, deeply. And so we can bear up under this. If we want, as a body of Christians, to glorify the Lord, awaiting his coming, then we need to love one another enduringly, earnestly, from a pure heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us, that you are steadfast in that love. Help us to see that. Help us to be encouraged by that and to imitate your love. Father, there's much weight as we look around at our culture, much weight, but we trust your word. And more than that, I pray that these brothers and sisters here would grow in loving one another to put aside differences and sins, not to neglect them, to encourage one another towards holiness, but Lord, to love one another so that we can 
bear up under this weight faithfully. Would you meet with us and strengthen us as we sing, as we pray, as we fellowship, that these things would continue to happen among us. In Jesus' name, amen.